You know, speaking of words, there are six words that no child ever wants to hear. Every time they are spoken, at least every time they were spoken to me, fear strikes the heart. The knees weaken, the heart starts racing, the mind begins formulating excuses. Given enough time, there will be begging, there will be pleading, there will be cajoling. I'm not above bribing. Nothing can remove the fear these six words create in every child. Wait until your father gets home. (laughs) I've heard those words more times than I can remember or want to remember. I'm sure many of you have heard those words. They've been directed at you. Some of us have even used those words against our own children. The first time it happened to me, I was too young to remember But I've heard my mom tell the story so many times, it's almost as if I were there. Uh, I was two and a half years old. My next brother down, my little brother Tony, who would later join the army so he could learn to defend himself, uh, was one, one year old. We were outside playing on the grass. My mom was sitting on the porch. It was one of those small town, idyllic, you know, just peaceful scenes. I'm sure there was lemonade involved and people waving howdy from the street as they walked by, all of that. My mom went inside for some reason, I don't know, and her going inside gave me just enough time to toddle over to my brother, sit on his chest, begin lifting up his head, and then dropping it. (laughs) Lift, thunk, (laughs) lift, thunk, (laughs) it never gets old. (laughs) Of course, when my mom tells the story, my brother was on the sidewalk. And I was not dropping his head, I was holding him by the ears and seeing how much force I could get in just those few short inches. Uh, That's not the way I remember it. Well, she came outside, she sees me reenacting Cain and Abel and goes (laughs) ballistic, tears me off of my brother, carries me inside by one arm, I'm sure my feet never even touched the ground put me in the corner, very kindly and politely told me that if I didn't stay there, she was not responsible for what happened to me. And then the words, the words no one wants to hear, wait until your father gets home. Oh man, fathers have a special bond with their children, a bond of love forged in the fires of discipline, the same place the spanking spoon was forged. Hearing, wait until your father gets home, is not a comforting phrase. It means you've been disobedient. It means you've screwed up so badly that only dad, the enforcer, can put things to rights. Boy, that feeling you get when you hear your dad's on his way home. Boy, that feeling sure depends a lot on whether or not you've just been disobedient. And it depends on your dad's character and the way he administers his household and disciplines his children. Now, I'm exaggerating a bit, of course, to make a point. As we've been exploring the Lord's Prayer together in this series, Teach Us to Pray, we've gotten to the place now where we pray, your kingdom come. And of course, with a kingdom comes a king. So when we say these words, your kingdom come, we're anticipating a kingdom and its king arriving home. 
And the emotion we feel, alarm or anticipation, depends largely on the state of relationship between us and that king and on the king's own character and the way that he rules and reigns. In other words, praying your kingdom come uh, can be scary, comforting, depending on how you perceive the God we address as Father and what you think he's like. So as we get to these three little words, your kingdom come, we're going to dig into them this morning uh, from the version of the Lord's Prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6. And we've got to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Or to put it in little kid language, what does it mean to pray daddy come home? Are we ready for that? Are we anticipating it? Are we looking forward to daddy coming home? Well, in our journey through the Lord's Prayer so far, we have passed through our Father, and hallowed be your name, let your name be made holy, let it be made holy through me. Today, we arrive at your kingdom come. It's just three little words. We're going to tackle them and our exploration of them in two main themes. This is the easiest outline I have ever written. I have two points. Kingdom come. I didn't even have to put it up. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't say kingdom come up there, does it? Never mind. Kingdom come. You've got it figured out. Write that down. That's our outline for today. It's simple. It's obvious. But there are a lot of questions that we can ask of just these two words. What is a kingdom? Whose kingdom? What's this kingdom like? What does it mean for the kingdom to come? Come from where? Come to whom? In what manner will it come? What time will it come? And that's just scratching the surface. We could keep asking more questions, but that would be way more than we can handle in 30 minutes. So we're just going to jump in with the questions we have so far. First, kingdom. When we say your kingdom come, what kingdom are we talking about? Now, it's no surprise that kingdom is a theme found throughout Scripture, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Over a hundred times in the Gospels alone, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus talks about the kingdom. And it's confusing. Every time he talks about the kingdom, it sounds like he's talking about something different each time. Sometimes he talks as if the kingdom is way off in the future. He says many will come and take their place at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. At the feast, in the future. Sometimes he sounds like the kingdom is right here now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. Sometimes he says the kingdom is close. It's near, but it's not here yet. He comes right out and says it. The kingdom of heaven is near. Or the kingdom of God is in your midst. Sometimes he says the kingdom comes from outside the person and almost against their will is imposed on them. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's come over you. It's kind of confusing. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about the kingdom? Is it future or present, material or spiritual, individual or national? Well, let's back up for one minute before we dig into those questions and just make sure we agree on what we mean when we say kingdom. I mean, a kingdom is a type of authority structure, a type of governmental structure, and we don't tend to go for monarchy and kingdoms in these United States. Uh, unless it's, there's a royal baby or a royal wedding, and then we're all about it, but otherwise we'd fight wars to keep from having kings. Since we don't have a monarchy, we don't really have, you know, sort of a deeply ingrained sense of what it means to live under a kingdom. So we have to use analogies. Think of a kingdom as an authority structure like a government or a home, an authority structure in an office, 
uh, in a group project, on a sports team, any area where authority is exercised. My daughter, Anna, about a year ago began begging us to put her in soccer. I don't know why. I'm not sure why soccer caught her attention. Uh, she's afraid of the ball. She runs away every time it comes near. And she always asks me if practice can be a no-kicking-the-ball-in-the-air-today practice. And the reason she asks me is because I'm the coach. I don't know the first thing about coaching. I don't know much more about soccer than what I learned as a referee in high school, refereeing little kids' games, the kind where they clump up and then just follow the ball around. We called it amoeba ball. Um, I know amoeba ball rules. I don't know actual soccer rules. I do know, by the way, that in soccer, contrary to football, it's offside in soccer, offsides in football. Just, that was free. Uh, enjoy. <laughs> but again, I really don't know anything more than that, but her team needed a dad to step up and be the coach. So I volunteered. They call me coach. That's how I know I'm the coach. Now, a coach is also, in some small way, a king. And his t- I'm not letting that go to my head, I promise. A coach <laughs> is a king, and his team is his kingdom, right? Every kingdom has a king. That's me, the coach. And every kingdom has its own little fiefdom. I think that's where FIFA comes from. It's your little fiefdom. <laughs> my fiefdom, my territory. For me, it's the soccer field, right? I have no authority in anyone's life when they're not on the field, in the game. I can't tell them to eat their vegetables. I can't make them go to bed on time. I can't make them do, I I can make mine, but I can't make any of the other kids do their chores. All I can do is exercise the rule that I have as the coach on the field. That's it. And even now that she's in U10, I have to submit to a higher authority. We got refs now, woo. I'm no longer the sole king. I'm not bitter. Um, I, as the king, have a subjects and an arena in which my rule is valid. And like any king, I also have a, a method of administration, sort of a way in which I administer my right and just rule among these children. The best coaches are able to build up teams, build up kingdoms that encourage and enable every kid on their team to flourish beyond their abilities to play unified, to play as a team, to value the team more than they value their individual performance. Bad coaches, on the other hand, build up a little kingdom that's not about the subjects, but about themselves. They put too much of themselves into the outcome of their games and tie their self-worth to their record, which is not a smart thing to do when you've got U10 soccer. Uh, They build these little fiefdoms, these little kingdoms that are about themselves and use the kids to serve their own self-esteem. Your king can be a good king or a bad king. Kings can have the same goal, the same end in mind, and yet exercise them in better or poorer ways. Every kingdom has a leader, subjects, an arena or an area in which their rule is valid, has a way of administering that rule, and some sort of connection or disconnection between subjects and ruler some sort of affection or disaffection. It's the same with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has a king. That's God. God, our Father, the prayer has taught us to pray. A Father who is good. Good, yes, but not soft. Not indulgent. 
God who cares deeply about fairness, about right play, a God who cares so passionately about justice that he would and he has sacrificed everything to see justice done and yet see the team stay together and see more people join. The kingdom of God has a king, that's God, our, our father. And the kingdom also has a people, those who have believed in faith that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in our place has paid the debt of sin that we owe to God, has appeased his righteous wrath against our sin, and has made a way for us to be the adopted sons and daughters of God. Not just to become citizens of the kingdom, uh, though that would be blessing enough, but to become adopted sons and adopted daughters of the king himself. Not just subjects, but children, heirs of all the riches of the kingdom. Those are the people of the kingdom now. In the future, everyone will be subject in the kingdom of God. Some to everlasting joy. Those who have chosen of themselves to to subjugate themselves to God the King. Uh, Some to everlasting darkness. Those who have resisted the opportunity to become part of the kingdom of God of their own free choice, and to whom God has said, if you will not join my kingdom, I will let you have yours. This tiny little kingdom of darkness, cut off from the light that is life in the kingdom of God. And because citizenship in the kingdom, adoption into the king's own family, is not based on family pedigree, your level of moral attainment, your intelligence, your ethnic background, what church you belong to. But because it's based in faith, faith in Jesus, God's Son, given for us, the kingdom of God has no tribal lines. It has no ethnic boundaries. People in Pakistan praying The Lord's Prayer in Urdu are just as able and just as privileged to pray to God our Father, your kingdom come, as we are, we who prayed in English in Indianapolis. This isn't to say that ethnic lines, boundaries, borders don't matter. It's only to say that they have been relativized. They've been subordinated underneath the kingship of God himself. If you serve God the King, you serve God the King first. And that is the only citizenship that ultimately defines who we are. Every other citizenship, every other group, every other ethnicity, gender is always uh, subjected to and subordinated to the citizenship we have first in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God has a king, God, a people, the people of faith, but the kingdom of God also has a, a geography, an area, or an arena within which God's rule is valid. The goal from the beginning of creation, of course, was for God's kingdom to be spread across the earth through the, uh, the procreative and, and, and creative and constructive and extensive efforts of the people God created. But we stepped away from that to create our own kingdom, which collapsed in on, it, on itself. And so at this present time, God's rule and reign is fully, utterly, and completely true in heaven. This is what the prayer tells us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet in the future, God's kingdom, 
the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth will be joined together, integrated at last, as one author puts it, and God's rule and reign will finally be complete and universal and total. Now, of course, that could happen right now. Snap of the fingers, the kingdom comes, and yet God has said he is waiting. He's being patient. He is delaying in order that more and more may choose to enter the kingdom of their own accord instead of have the kingdom come upon them. We are citizens of the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom that is coming from heaven to earth and the kingdom that will be on earth in the future. We are citizens of that kingdom now as people of that kingdom with God's rule in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives today. We are people whose king is God whose citizenship is by faith, and who's subject to his rule within us, within our actions, within our lives. And we are subject to his rule, his mode of administration. God has chosen in this in-between time to administer his kingdom through us. Those of us who pray as St. Augustine did, Lord, let your kingdom come. But first, let it come in me. Let it come in me. Another author put it this way, expanding on it a bit. It's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, even our checkbooks. Because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. He says, the only way the kingdom of God is going to manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it, if we make it known by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. See, every kingdom has a king, God, our father, a people, the people of faith, a geography, our, our very beings, our hearts, our souls, our lives. And a rule, an administration through us. Now, the best definition of the kingdom of God that I've found that sort of puts all this together in a simple way comes from Graham Goldsworthy. He's an Australian Anglican evangelical. Uh, did a lot of work on those themes that kind of bridge the Old Testament and the New Testament, helping to simplify, helping us to understand them. He defines the kingdom of God very simply as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So when Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, he's telling us to pray for God's people and more of them, to live lives that anticipate being in God's place under God's direction under his care, under his rule and his blessing. It's a pretty comprehensive definition. God's people in God's place under God's rule and reign. That's the kingdom, the kingdom of God we are praying to come when we say your kingdom come. But let's shift gears now from kingdom to the verb, come. What, what do we ask of this, this verb? How do we understand what it means to pray for the kingdom to come? to come here, to come now, to come to us, to come from heaven. 
There are more implications in that one verb than we have time to parse this morning. So I'm just going to highlight a few, four, uh, actually. Uh, four things that this one word teaches us. First, it teaches us in praying your kingdom come, we learn that we are asking that the kingdom of God come here, not that we go to it. We want the kingdom of God to come here. We're not asking to be pulled out of it and sent out of this world and sent to it. One commentator points out, he says, think of the vision at the end of Revelation. It isn't about humans being snatched up from earth to heaven. And that may happen depending on your theological system and earlier in Revelation. But at the end, the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down from heaven to earth. God's space and ours are finally married. God's kingdom comes to earth. That's what we're asking for when we pray, your kingdom come. Second, when we pray, your kingdom come. We're acknowledging that the kingdom of God, God's perfect rule and reign over our lives and over our circumstances, has not come yet. This world is not what it's supposed to be. This is not the kingdom of God that we are living in now. This world is hard, too hard sometimes. Many of us have found ourselves at the places where the only prayer we had left was, your kingdom come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The kingdom will come, but it is not here yet. But even as we pray for it to come here, that immediately tells us we we are not praying for something that is simply heavenly or otherworldly. We're not we're not praying for a kingdom that is just an attitude within my heart, an attitude of thankfulness. We are praying for a a real kingdom to come to earth. If it's going to come to this earth, that means it's going to come physically, materially. The kingdom will be a thing you can grasp, you can touch, you can understand. When we pray, your kingdom come, we pray that everything that is wrong with the world will be set to rights. We're not limiting ourselves to simply spiritual matters as if the kingdom is only a heart issue, only an issue of salvation, of faith. This prayer, your kingdom come, because it is a physical prayer, we're allowed, for that, we're allowed to include in that prayer not just spiritual rebirth, but social reform, racial justice, medical relief, justice for immigrants and refugees, gender equality, environmental sustainability, and a whole host of other issues. Praying your kingdom come doesn't skip over all of that. Instead, it gathers it all up together and brings it, lifts it up with the prayer into heaven before God our Father and acknowledges that when the kingdom comes, then finally justice will be done. These things will be made right. It's not an overstatement to say that perhaps the most important work any one of us can do to help set the world to rights is to pray, your kingdom come. Third, when we, when we do pray that, your kingdom come, when we ask for this kingdom to come, your kingdom, not my kingdom. I know most of us are used to praying, my kingdom come, right? When we say your kingdom come, 
the kingdom of God, we are recognizing it is not ours, and it is not defined by any of the things that we define a kingdom by. Or I should say, it's not defined by any of the examples of kingdoms we see in our lives right now. The kingdom of God is distinct from all other kingdoms. We are not taught to pray that the kingdoms of this world will slowly transform into the kingdom of God. Uh, we weren't told to pray, uh, your kingdom grow in the fertile soil that is this world from the seed of good deeds that I have placed in it, or forsooth and verily. I try to make it sound King Jamesian. I don't think I did a very good job. But we're not to pray for it to, to grow here within the world, but to come from the outside onto the world, into the world. No government, no authority structure on this earth currently represents God's kingdom. None does, none can. Governments and authority structures can, of course, resemble it. The way you lead your home, your office, your business, the way you work in school, the way you teach, the way you learn, all, all of these, any opportunity you have to exercise authority can resemble the kingship in the kingdom of God, but it cannot represent it, not in its official, like, on earth for now, stand-in, legal authority sense. And of course, it should go without saying, any government that claims to represent the kingdom of God is claiming authority they don't have. Our job is not to look around and see where we think the kingdom of God is, is rising in some governmental structure and then support that. Our job is a little more difficult come to that in a second. Fourth, when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray it recognizing that we don't know when it will come. Actually, the verb is interesting. There's no time aspect tied to it. Uh, it's, we're not taught to pray, your kingdom come today, or your kingdom come tomorrow, or your kingdom come next week. We are taught simply to pray, your kingdom come. In other words, just as important as it is for us to pray that God's kingdom actually come to earth, so it is for us to become the type of people who desire the kingdom to come to earth. When we pray this prayer regularly over and over again, it, it works on us and becomes for us a prayer of hope, a prayer of rest, a prayer of confidence that one day God will come back and all sad things will come untrue. It's a prayer that teaches us not just, not just to pray for the kingdom, but to desire the kingdom. St. Augustine again comments on this fact. He writes, when we say your kingdom come, which shall certainly come whether we wish it or not, when we say this, we do by these words stir up our own desires for that kingdom, that it may come to us and that we may be found worthy to reign in it. Well, let's back up for a couple minutes. Kingdom come, the kingdom of God come to earth. How do we pray that prayer now in this context, in this time? There are, of course, just a stack of books you could find on the Lord's Prayer and even more sermons that people have preached on it. And I found a few collections of sermons. Some were more helpful than others. But one in particular by uh, N.T. Wright, he's the former bishop of Durham. Uh, when he applies this idea this, uh, of praying your kingdom come, I found it to be very helpful. He says, praying this prayer, 
means for a start that, we, that as we look up into the face of our Father in heaven and commit ourselves to the hallowing of his name, then we look immediately out upon the whole world that he made and we see it as he sees it. We see this world with the love of the creator for this spectacularly beautiful creation. And we see it with the deep grief of the creator for the battered and battle-scarred state in which the world now finds itself. We are praying, as Jesus was praying and acting, for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, and for heaven and earth to be married at last, for God to be all in all. And of course, he says, if we pray this way, we must be prepared to live this way. You can't pray your kingdom come without feeling the weight of the obligation to live your kingdom come. There's an obligation that comes with it, uh, that we pray for the kingdom and work to live under that kingdom ourselves. Praying your kingdom come means we commit ourselves. When we say amen and rise from our praying or rise from our bed, we are committed to go out and work, to go out and work and struggle and sweat and give and sacrifice all not to make the kingdom come, but to highlight our witness as citizens of the kingdom that is to come. Jamie Smith is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College, and he writes on this point. He says, the body of Christ should be a testimony to the kingdom that is coming, bearing witness to how the world will be otherwise. Our work, our practices should be foretaste of that coming new kingdom. Our engagement with God's world, he warns, is not about running the show or winning a culture war. He says, we are called to be witnesses, not necessarily winners. We are called to be witnesses, not necessarily winners, witnesses of the kingdom to come. To be a Christian who prays your kingdom come is to be a, a Christian who witnesses to the truth and the character of the coming kingdom of God, even in the face of the kingdoms of this world, which are antithetical to God's rule. So how do we pray it? Martin Luther helps. He says, we pray this prayer so that we may be a part of those among whom his name is hallowed and among whom his kingdom prospers. Praying the prayer teaches us to desire the kingdom. So let's wrap this up. When my, when my mother put me in the corner and said, wait till your father gets home, what she was really saying was, you have failed to live as a citizen of the kingdom to come. The kingdom of 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. I was living a disobedient life. I was living in light of the little kingdom of me, the one that, did, that allowed no competition, no brothers. I wasn't living in light of the king who was coming later that day. There are no scarier words for a disobedient child to hear than wait till your father gets home. And yet there are no more comforting, no more hopeful words for a child of God to pray than I can't wait for my father to come home. To pray your kingdom come, or to pray the child's version, daddy come home, is to rest in 
the good news. The good news that what must be done for the kingdom to come has already been done. Jesus taught the words before the cross, but when we pray them after the cross, we don't just look forward to the coming kingdom. We look backwards to Jesus' work on the cross that made the coming of the kingdom possible. One commentator writes, Jesus' first followers didn't think for a moment the kingdom meant simply some new religious advice. Uh, some improved spirituality or a better, co better code of morals or a freshly crafted theology 2.0. They held to a stronger, more dangerous claim. They believed that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole cosmos had turned the corner from darkness to light. The kingdom is here, but it looks a lot different than we expected it to. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is guaranteed to come because Jesus left his kingdom to come to earth, to die in our place, and to usher the kingdom in for us. This is good news. Not good advice, not a, another way to live so that you can maybe someday deserve to live in the kingdom or earn your way into the kingdom. This is news that everything that has to be done has been done. All that's left for us is to believe this news in faith. And now to live and construct our lives as citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom to come. Our king, Jesus, has ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again one day to judge in righteousness the living and the dead. It's good news. Just a little while longer, and our Father comes home. Let's pray. God, you have been so good to us in giving us the hope of the kingdom. You've been good to us in not waiting, or you've been good to us in waiting, not immediately just coming and bringing your kingdom here, but giving us, your people, this church, the opportunity to enter into your kingdom ourselves through faith in Jesus' shed blood and resurrection on our behalf. You have not left us without a witness in this world, and yet you have left us to be a witness in this world. Help us to live as citizens, ambassadors of the kingdom to come, allowing you to rule and reign in our hearts, in our hands, in our lives, as we willingly submit ourselves to your just and righteous rule. We pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.